0: Good morning. We are in a new series starting today um, called Secrets of the Good Life. Um, And it really is a secret because I didn't know until earlier this week that this was part of a series. I thought I was just preparing a random sermon. Um, So we're doing a good job so far. (laughs) Um, But this is a series on habits of the heart and habits of relationships that bring us to abundant life. Um, I think the more we get to know God, um, the more we come to realize that his commands are not arbitrary um, and that abundant life is not a reward for getting the commands right, um, but that the commands are really for us because he loves us and that abundant life is a natural consequence of, of doing these things. So that's what we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. Um, Speaking speaking of secrets of the good life, here's my secret. Um, We are not asked to preach because we're actually good at what we're preaching about. As it turns out, it's actually a clever ploy to get me meditating on something long enough to have a chance of putting it into practice. So just as we begin here, you should know I'm not actually any better at this than you are. Here we go. What do you think of when you think of the Old Testament law? I think a lot of us kind of think of it as maybe kind of burdensome. Like, do there really need to be that many regulations about what you do with a sheep? Or, um, or even just that it's kind of weird. Like, do, why do we have a law about planting two different kinds of seed in a field? It just, we, we struggle with the Old Testament law a little bit. And it does reveal God's nature. Um, it reveals God as somebody who is holy and who cares about justice and kindness in a real and tangible way. Um, but we really kind of have this impression of strictness and seriousness, um, and even danger. I mean, to be honest, there's, there's kind of a lot of capital crimes in the Old Testament law. So I was reading through the Torah recently, like you do, um, and I got, towards the end of Leviticus and it's talking about the different regulations for the holidays Um, and in the midst of all of these specifics about here's when you celebrate it and here's what you do um, I came across this one holiday that said and you are to rejoice before the Lord for seven days well that's kind of an odd command isn't it you know it's kind of cool and unexpected that You know, it was important to God that these holidays not be just a remembrance, not be just a regulation, but a celebration. So that tells us something right there about God's character as well, doesn't it? Well, imagine my surprise when I got to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and found this. In this passage about, okay, here's the really important things to remember, here's what to do when you get to the promised land, Make sure you don't start following other gods. Interspersed and intertwined with all of that is all of this. Rejoice before the Lord. Rejoice before the Lord over and over again in that passage. So what do we do with that? If you're like most of us, you start looking for loopholes. Like... Because it's pretty pretty similar to First Thessalonians five, right? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. And I feel like most of us kind of go, really, like rejoice in everything you put your hand to, give thanks in all circumstances. Because honestly, Lord, that's a lot of circumstances. One of my favorite stories uh, comes from Cory Ten Boom, who was a Holocaust survivor. Um, she and her sister were interned together. Um, those who did the the summer camp last year got to tell her story um, so sign up for the new summer camp um, <laughs> but when she and her sister arrived at the concentration camp they found that the place that they were going to stay in was just overrun crawling with fleas and Corey said how are we going to do this how are we going to stay here um, and her sister said we, we just read it this morning Give thanks in all circumstances. Let's start thanking God for everything about being here. You know, thank you, Lord, that we were put here together. Thank you that we have people here we can minister to. And then her sister Betsy started thanking God for the fleas, and Corey said, "Wait, hold on. No, there is no way that even God could make me grateful for a flea." Now I kind of think Corey had a point here. You know, it it says rejoice give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. But Betsy insisted. They thanked God for the fleas. They went on to have some really, really fruitful ministry for many weeks there. Weeks and weeks later, they found out that the reason that they were allowed to minister in their uh, barracks was because the guards did not want to come into the barracks because of the fleas. So it's It's helpful to seek understanding of these passages, to try and understand, you know, what exactly God is saying here. But we need to be a little bit careful because when, if we find that we're getting super specific about defining, you know, when you have to rejoice, um, you know, like you don't have to do it if it's after midnight on a Thursday, you know, getting really specific about that, that's usually just a sign that we don't want to do it. Um, And I think it's almost never helpful to look at God's commands as a burden instead of an invitation. So as we're defining what this looks like and what this really means for us, we need to be careful to come at it with an attitude of trust. Um, So I'm not going to give you a checklist today of what this looks like. I'm not going to spell out for you what this means. Um, But I do want to be clear that rejoicing always does not mean be happy and feel nothing else. Because God gave us every single one of our emotions. If you look through scripture, um, all of our basic human emotions are reflected in the ways that God talks about how he feels too. Um, so all of our emotions are something that God gave us. They're not supposed to be just steamrollered by rejoicing. Um, and, and we kind of know this, right? We know that celebration can be complicated. It's not just a flat, this is happy, right? Because think of a parent whose child is getting married, right? You're very, very happy for your child, but there's also a sense of loss there. There's also a sad part of it, um, because your relationship is changing. It's a complicated celebration, right? Um, And the reason that celebration is complicated is because it is an action and not an emotion. To celebrate something, to rejoice, is an action and not an emotion. Um, And also, we can't directly control our feelings. Um, Feelings just kind of happen. The part that we control is the thought behind the feeling. So perhaps a better question than what exactly do we have to do to rejoice is, is why? Why would God command us to rejoice? Well, I think first of all, It anchors us in who God is. You know, this is the only God who gives us a reason to rejoice. And I think that that's why in Deuteronomy, that passage that we just had up there, that's why it's intertwined with all of those regulations about don't start worshiping other gods. Don't start picking up these other practices where you have to sacrifice your children to the gods. This is the God who gives you reason to rejoice. Anything else that we worship anything else that we let take control of our lives becomes a tyrant in our lives. The reason that we rejoice over our God is because of who our God is. So first of all, it anchors us in who God is. It anchors us and it feeds us, right? It feeds our souls. I was just reading a story um, through Voice of the Martyrs about a Christian man who was imprisoned. He was in solitary confinement. He was really hungry. It was not a good day for him. And then he remembered the verses about rejoicing when we are persecuted for Jesus' sake. So in obedience, he started to sing and dance in his cell. Well, the guards looked in. They thought he had gone crazy. They'd been told to treat the crazy ones kindly, so they gave him some bread and cheese. So sometimes rejoicing literally feeds us, um, but it always feeds our souls. Um, there are, there's study after study of, about how you know, a positive outlook on the world it actually is healthy for the body as well. Um, but for us, this, is, this goes way beyond just, you know, positive thinking, which is very popular to talk about. But this is, this is something different. This is beyond that. Um, because for us, rejoicing is rooted in who God is. And I think that's another reason that he asks us to rejoice. It reorients us to reality. You know, I've heard said over and over again that um, a very biblical way to pray is to thank God and praise God first before you get to all what all your requests are. Um, and when I first heard this, it was sort of like, so, so are we saying we need to flatter God in order to make Him listen to us a little more? And but then I started praying that way. Um, you know, gave it a try, and I realized the reason that this is powerful is it reminds us who we're talking to. My problems that I want to pray about, that I'm so anxious to get to talk to God about, seem so much smaller if I start with remembering who God is, rejoicing in who God is. And, and my inadequacies also seem way less important when I start focusing on the adequacy of God. Um, so it reorients us to reality when we rejoice. Um, I think we should also rejoice because he deserves it, right? You know, in any relationship, you want them to enjoy being with you. And of all of us, he's probably the one who deserves that most. And we also rejoice because he does it for us. One of my favorite verses is um, Zephaniah 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's not often how we think of God, is it? But the Bible over and over again depicts Jesus as joyful. Psalm 45 talks about the Messiah as the one who is anointed with the oil of joy. John 1 talks about Jesus as being full of life and that life was the light of men. It's a really vibrant picture and it's fulfilled In the next chapter, John 2, the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine, most of us have heard that story. John makes a point of telling us the jars that were filled with water were the same kind that were used in ceremonial washing. Why would he feel the need to point that out? Because Jesus took this symbol of of cleansing and of, of always trying over and over again to make things right, and he transformed it into a symbol of joy because he did the final cleansing to bring us into joy. So we've been, we've been talking about why should we rejoice, but there's, there are sort of two ways to answer that question, aren't there? We've been talking about the purpose of rejoicing, um, but we could also be looking at why rejoice from a perspective of what reasons do we have to rejoice? And I think this is our first one, isn't it? You know, we've, we've been given salvation. We've been given forgiveness. We have a relationship with God now. We're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. The, really, the reason that we rejoice, first of all, is because the water has been turned into wine. We also rejoice because God is sovereign and God is for us. Now, the natural corollary of this is spelled out in Romans 8.28. Um, which I know a lot of us get tired of this verse because it's usually quoted at the most inopportune times. Um, But it says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Think about that for a minute, though. That means that nothing that happens to you is outside of God's hands and that everything that happens in your life is something that God will use Now, I want to be careful with that. That does not mean that God causes everything that happens in your life. But it does mean that he can use all of it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen those artists who use found objects in their art. Um, My mom's been making fun of me recently because I've been doing a lot of scavenging for a project I'm working on. Um, But artists who work with found objects take trash and they make them into artwork. It doesn't mean that what they took wasn't trash, but it means that they have been able to transform it into something beautiful and remarkable. And that is something that God does. If, if it's true that God is sovereign and that he is on our side, it means that that's what he's doing with our lives. Now, there's another reason to rejoice, and we don't often like this one, because Romans 5 says we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. We've kind of got a bit of a problem in American culture. We live in a very entitled age. Um, We kind of have this perspective that there should have been something that we could pay, something that we could do to not have to deal with whatever suffering we're going through. Um, Suffering doesn't surprise other cultures nearly as much as it surprises us. But this this attitude that we have that suffering is way out of the ordinary often makes us miss the value in being refined. How would we develop all of the virtues that we admire, courage, empathy, patience, grace, if we never faced suffering? Even if God just sort of magically gave them to us, we wouldn't ever use them if we weren't ever in uncomfortable situations. So they wouldn't be real, would they? And we kind of know this instinctively, right? We don't want athletes who use steroids instead of training. We don't want rhinestones when we could have diamonds. Why? Because we instinctively know that there is value in things that took time and work and even pain. So we rejoice because God is making us into somebody that we would look up to That's the end game here. And it's not a full answer to the question of why we suffer, but it does speak to why we should rejoice in our sufferings. That verse in Romans 5 about rejoicing in our sufferings goes on to say that hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out into our heart his love by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. A couple chapters later, he he says that that spirit in our hearts, calls out, Abba, Father. This speaks of a really, really intimate relationship between us and God, and that is yet another reason to rejoice. Oh, we're skipping ahead here. OK. Clickers are not a reason to rejoice. Technology is not my friend. <laughs> but this is another one. First Corinthians 15 says that if it's only for this life that we have hope, we should be pitied more than anybody, implying we do have hope for eternity. It's not just this life. This is something that we have. There there is reason after reason to rejoice. I can't list all of them here. Um, But Deuteronomy 12 says, rejoicing everything you put your hands to, because every day is a gift. Every activity is a gift. Ordinary life is a gift. Um, And so... So the reasons to rejoice include every day being a gift. They include the fact that our lives make sense in the, life, in the light of our maker. We are allowed to participate in his work. There's reason after reason to rejoice. One of my favorites there. Um, and, and I believe that there is always a way to rejoice. Um, A a while back, I started playing an interesting game with myself, um, inspired in part by our dear friend uh, Kathy McCoy. Um, I started taking anything that I was complaining about and seeing if there was a way that I could thank God for that situation. So when I'm really busy, I start saying, well, thank you, God, that I have a full life, that I have a lot of things that I'm interested in doing and that I get to do them. Um, When I'm in conflict with somebody, Thank you for helping me learn to deal with conflict, because I'm not all that great at it. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to be honest. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to love when it's hard. Um, I find when I'm sick, I, I find that I'm probably more thankful than ever, because thank you, God for slowing me down and reminding me that the world doesn't stop turning when I stop working. There is always a way to rejoice. And again, I know this sounds a lot like it, you know, positive thinking techniques. But again, it's rooted in the reality of God, so it is far, far beyond just positive thinking. Now, here, here's the issue. This is all easier said than done, isn't it? Because sometimes we are legitimately in really tough, really sad, really hard situations. And sometimes we just really need to tell God how awful things are. The psalms are full of this, and that's pretty remarkable because the psalms were Israel's worship songbook, and the majority of them are sad. So biblically, sadness and rejoicing are not incompatible. Psalm 42 that we read a portion of this morning is probably one of the saddest. It, it depicts really, really accurately the experience of depression, but it still says I will still praise God. Um, I don't know if you're, you're probably all familiar with with the phrase great is thy faithfulness, yes? Yes. Do we know where that comes from? It comes from the book of Lamentations which is a five chapter long poem about how awful life has gotten. The author has just gotten done talking about how compassionate mothers are having to eat their own children in the streets And he says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Great is thy faithfulness. That's where that comes from. Uh, Does anybody here like me um, enjoy reading footnotes? Sometimes footnotes are better than than the book itself, especially if you're reading Terry Pratchett. Um, But have you ever read the footnotes in... um, In the New Testament, when you get to the um, to the triumphal entry, it talks about the word Hosanna, where everybody's saying Hosanna to the Son of David. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The footnote tells us Hosanna actually meant save, and it had become colloquially used as an expression of praise, but it meant save. You know, help me. That's kind of weird, isn't it? It's kind of weird for that to develop into an expression of praise. But if you think about it, um, just imagine for a moment that you're you're in a war, you're behind enemy lines and you're wounded. Who are you going to call out for help to? You're not going to call out to the enemy soldiers. You're not going to call out to your buddy who's wounded worse than you are. You're not going to call out to the statue in the square You're probably going to wait for the medic who's on your side, right? Because when we're calling out for help, we're not going to ask our enemies. We don't ask people who are weaker than us, and we don't ask abstract or inanimate objects. Hosanna is an expression of praise because it implicitly states that God is personal, that God is bigger than us, and that God is on our side. Hosanna states that we can trust God even when we really don't want to be going through this situation. Um, and, And that's what we see when we look at Jesus, isn't it? The book of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. But if you also look at what the scripture says, it says that before he went to the cross, he prayed, Lord, if there's any other way... Let's pick another way, because I really don't want to be—I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. And that does not mean that we're hypocritical. It just means that, as Corey Ten Boom says, joy runs deeper than despair. So when you hear me saying rejoice always, please do not hear me saying fake it. Um, a lot of times, Christians take these commands to rejoice. And they say, oh, well, I I shouldn't say anything negative then, ever. I've struggled with a number of health issues over the years. I get sick pretty easily. I've had people say to me, oh, how are you doing today? And I'll say, oh, I'm sick. And they say, don't say that. There's power in the tongue. There's power in your words. Don't say that. So I sort of said, well, okay, so you're, you're asking me to either shut up or lie to you. But we often pretend, we pretend to rejoice, we pretend things are okay because we believe that rejoicing is the same thing as being happy. And we, so we fake it sort of as a sacred duty. And that is not biblical. It is not at all biblical. The Bible holds intention, present pain and eternal hope. The Bible declares that God is big enough to acknowledge our pain. And again, we see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus was constantly challenging people to look at things through the eyes of eternity. And yet, even right before he was going to turn death inside out, he wept at the grave of his friend. He was able to acknowledge present pain and also hold on to eternal hope. I believe God wants a relationship with you where you trust him enough to be brutally honest with him. I mean, he knows anyway, so you might as well tell him. And where you trust him enough to rejoice. This is illustrated beautifully in the book of Habakkuk. He says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And that's remarkable, isn't it? To be able to say, nothing in my life makes sense right now, and God is good. Of course, sometimes it does make sense, doesn't it? That was the case in Habakkuk's day, that he knew exactly why the suffering was going on. That happened to be a judgment on Israel because they had broken God's covenant. Sometimes the thing that keeps us from rejoicing is our own shame. Um, I think sometimes we're, we really get why Simon Peter said, go away, Lord, I'm a sinful man. We just, we just don't want to be near him. We don't want to be talking to him when we're ashamed of ourselves. Um, so this is, this is a great time to talk about Nehemiah. Who, who knows the phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength? Yes? Yes. Heard it like a million times. It's one of those tea towel phrases, you know, the things that are embroidered on tea towels and sort of sold on Etsy and those sorts of things. Um, it's one of those verses that we just take out of context and slap on our walls because it sounds nice. Um, the context of it, though, is Israel had just come back from exile. They had broken the covenant. Things had been awful. They'd come back to a ruined Jerusalem. And they're trying to rebuild And the priests are reading the Book of the Law to them. Most of the people have never heard it and wouldn't understand it if the priests weren't explaining things to them. So they're hearing all about everything God did for their ancestors. They're hearing about how God rescued them. They're hearing about how God pursued them and established a relationship with them. And they're hearing, recounted in the Book of the Law, point after point where they have failed. And they're weeping. As they're hearing this. And the priests say to them, don't grieve. This is a day holy to the Lord. Go celebrate. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't grieve today. They're not saying this because it's not worth crying over, because clearly it is. They're saying this because the holiness of that day supersedes what is worth crying over. The translation here is no matter what you're ashamed of, no matter what regrets you have, what God did is bigger than what you did. No matter what you're ashamed of or regret, what God did is bigger than what you did. This is the reality that we live in as Christians, that God wants to be in relationship with us that he stopped at nothing to be in relationship with us that he established his covenant with us that is the bedrock of reality on which our rejoicing stands you know sometimes we don't even want to crack open the gospels because i don't want to see jesus and see how far i fall short i was having one of those days a couple weeks ago while i was working on this sermon and yes i did understand the irony of that and I was listening to a Christian station on the radio and they were, um, they were reciting the verse where Jesus says, come to me and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And my immediate reaction was, yes, that is exactly the problem. That is not me. That is not what I'm like. I am not gentle and humble in heart. Thank you for pointing that out. And, and yet the Holy Spirit kind of spoke in that moment and said, You know, looking at the face of Jesus in Scripture is not an invitation to dwell on how bad we are. Like, look at how loving he is. I really should be like that. Um, It's a promise that you will look like that. The point is not to rub your nose in how far you fall short or beat you up with what you should be. It's to say, this person who is gentle and humble in heart, that's the one who embraces you. The face of Jesus that we see in the Gospels is a reason for sinners to rejoice. First of all, because I need a God who's bigger than me. If I can live up to God today, my God is too small. I need a God who can keep me growing and keep me learning and changing and transforming throughout my whole life. The face of Jesus in the Gospels is a reason to rejoice because that very grace that I can't live up to is also grace that is for me. The face of Jesus in the Gospels is a reason to rejoice because the reason he says learn from me is precisely because he's gentle and humble in heart. He's the kind of teacher that it is safe to learn from. Well, I was again having one of those days last week. As I said, I'm not good at this. And what God really spoke to my heart was that That weakness that I was so frustrated about and grieving about, that weakness is a cause to rejoice. Why? Because it connects us with God's grace. You know, sometimes we get so respectable that we don't really feel our need for God's grace and we don't feel his grace when we receive it. But when we're smack up against our weaknesses, that connects us with God's grace and it frees us from having to be perfect because there's no illusion to maintain maintain anymore. We really know that we're not. And it allows his power to show in our lives because we realize I don't got this, I need somebody to come into this and do it differently. It also allows us to humbly love others because we're obviously no better than them. And it also preaches the gospel through our lives. It says, Look, this works because I am a sinner and God is being kind to me. So these weaknesses that we have, even, are a cause to rejoice. My new favorite prayer is God, I'm sorry for how I am and I just don't have it in me to be any different. Because it's honest, it connects me to His grace, and He answers. He answers those prayers. I can tell you. The reality is that Jesus has taken on our shame and reconciled us to God. And rejoicing affirms that. That is why I think worship is so healthy for the soul. Is because worship presupposes that things are okay between us. You know, you the times in your relationship where you say, like, hey, I really enjoy you, I love you, you're great are not the times when there's something really important that you have to deal with in your relationship because usually that comes first. So worship presupposes things are okay. Jesus has made things okay between us. So rejoicing, here's what happens. Rejoicing is a result of knowing the truth. But the more that we rejoice, the stronger we get in knowing the truth. It's a cool little circle there. So we all have different barriers that want to keep us from rejoicing, and we're all going to find that different ways work to make rejoicing a habit of the heart. Um, as I promised before, I'm not going to give you a checklist on how to make this happen. I would say ask God about it. Ask God, how can I make this a habit in my life? Because different things are going to work for everybody, right? Um, A couple of the things that I have found work well in my life. As I mentioned before, playing a game with it, seeing if I can turn my complaints into rejoicing. Um, I also love the alphabet game, just going through the alphabet and finding something to thank God for, starting with each letter of the alphabet. Um, I've found that for me, it really works well to worship in the morning, right when I get up, because I can't think in the morning. If I try to read my Bible and pray in the morning, I am so grumpy and so like out of it, that it just does not go well. But I don't have to think in order to sing hymns, I don't have to think in order to praise God, and I can be in that space with God and start my day off well, instead of starting it off really tired and grumpy. Um, you can try starting your prayers with praise and thanksgiving before you get to your requests. You can try making a list of truths of reasons to rejoice, kind of like we did earlier, um, you'll all find that something different works for you. So ask God, and he will answer. He will guide you into things that help you make this a habit of the heart. Christian rejoicing is more than being happy. And it often includes healed shame or present sorrow that makes the rejoicing deeper. Christian rejoicing is rooted in truth, and that is why it is more than just positive thinking. For us, each day is a gift precisely because we are forgiven. Shame, guilt, that belief that God is against us, all of those things taint everything in our lives. It robs us of joy. The fact that we are reconciled with God means that we're able to receive each moment as the gift that it is. So, remember, as you go today, that I'm just as bad at this as you are. As you go today, encourage each other, because this isn't automatic for just about any of us. And as you go today, rejoice in everything you put your hand to. Let's pray.